Hey everybody. Happy Friday. Today it's a beautiful day. Here in lovely upstate New York. Some wispy clouds, the sun's out, it's warm. It's about as good as it gets. <clears throat> so I know I talked for a couple of days now about Miss Kimberly Ross coming on the podcast to discuss our perspectives on the quote-unquote migrant or asylum or whatever crisis on the southern border, but that's not going to happen. I'm not exactly sure why she ever responded to me. She's a, um, a writer, a blogger with Red State, maybe some other places as well. She's got a much, much, much larger Twitter following than I do. And um, I'm not exactly sure why she responded to me on that day. And, um, but she did. And then, uh, so, yeah, so then she, she agreed at that point to come on the podcast, but not, I had said, I think I was going to do it on Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever. And she said, no, no, not that day. It doesn't work for me. So. You know, I spent a lot of time in the South, and I know how Southern politeness works. Southern politeness is a lie wrapped up in nice words. And so I said to her privately, I'm like, hey, listen, if you're just being polite, if you're just being a proper Southern lady here, tell me, and that's fine. I get it. Like, you know, like I said, I lived down South a long time. The funny thing about Southern politeness is when you challenge it, its purpose is to obfuscate the feelings of the speaker. So if you challenge it directly, it, its whole purpose is to hide the truth. So <laughs> when you challenge it directly, it doesn't it doesn't come clean. So it took her a few days to uh, to tell me she had decided not to. Uh, come on the podcast. I think she never intended to come on the podcast. You guys hate me. <laughs> hang, hang on a second. Why do I say hang on a second? Because when I pause the recording to go fix that, you don't know. <laughs> I thought. Anyway. So she decided, not really, she knew all along, that she wasn't going to come on the podcast. So we waited for nothing. I used to work with this lady, uh, when I lived in North Carolina, I worked with this lady named Millie. I loved Millie, but for a very different reason than most people. Most people loved Millie because she was so sweet. They would say, Millie is the sweetest lady in the whole world. Millie would, she knew your name, came in the store, she knew your name. She would ask you how you're doing. She would tell you how nice you look today. She would compliment everybody. And then when they left, she would string together this epic curse word laden rant about how much she hated that person. <laughs> That's the part of Millie I liked. I liked the Millie that was, that, was, that was honest. Everyone else liked the lie. So that's what we're dealing with here, a little Southern hospitality. People think or are under the impression that people in New York are rude. 
And I don't think that's true. I've never thought that was true. And I don't like New York City. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's a good place. But the behavior that's perceived as rude by others is simply honest. So if you walked up to somebody who was raised to always be polite no matter what, and interrupted them in a way that they didn't want to be interrupted, they would be very polite to you in New York, but they don't want to talk to you either. In New York, there's no facade. They would just tell you that they don't want to be interrupted by you at this time in this way. People, oh, that's rude. No, it's, it's probably better that you, not, that you know for sure someone not want to be interrupted by you, talked to by you, whatever the case may be. Hundreds of people saw Millie every day and thought she liked them. Those people were all wrong. But they behaved as though she liked them, which isn't necessarily the end of the world. If Millie had been born and raised in, in the Bronx, people would know that she didn't like them. Well, at least you know where you stand. It doesn't make her rude. <clears throat> but anyway, that's a discussion for another day. So in 2005, I was in Tampa, and I was 20, 2004, five, somewhere there. I was young, my early 20s, early to mid-20s, and I was a, a manager of a, a garage, essentially, but a large, profitable garage. And I was always looking for ways to improve and to grow and to make business better. And so one of the ideas I came up with was being open later. I thought that oftentimes in the evenings, people wanted to have something done and we were unavailable because we were leaving. And um, so I came up with this idea. We were very close to the University of South Florida, which is, a, which is a large university. It's not Florida or Florida State, but it's pretty big. And I thought, well, if I can get some of the students there to come work and do essentially uh, simple things, uh, mount tires, oil changes, in the evening, part-time, that that would be a worthwhile exercise. I could, you know, they wouldn't want to be paid a ton of money, they're not highly skilled, but some of the more simple things could be left later in the day, we could be open later, we could service more customers, grow business. That was my idea. So I did it. So I hired, I think I had four of them in the original group. And then we were open till I think nine o'clock, and uh, they worked like five to nine. And one of the applicants was a young man from Egypt, and he was an engineering student who had a, a visa to study, and he also had um, the legal right to work in the United States. And my initial thought was I would not hire him when I talked to him. And then I started thinking about it. This was shortly after 9-11. The war was going on in Afghanistan. I think we had just invaded Iraq. And I thought to myself, you know what? There might be, in my, in my initial thought to not hire him, some anti-Muslim or Middle Eastern bias. And then that that's bad. And that I shouldn't feel that way. And I should 
sort of prove to myself that I'm not uh, biased or prejudiced by hiring him. So then I, so I did. So I did. And I almost immediately regretted it because he was so unimaginably unintelligent. The most simple things took ungodly long to explain to him, repeating over and over and over and over and over again from how to remove a drain plug from an oil pan, which I could explain to a three-year-old in 30 seconds. Um, I think it took him a week or two weeks before he could do it without supervision. So when you talk to him, he would look... If you've ever had a dog that wasn't smart and you talk to him and he kind of cocks his head to the side a little bit and looks at you very confused, that's the that was the look in, in this kid's eyes when you talked to him. Like he was supposed to understand you, but he didn't, none of the words made sense. And I think that might have been the, <laughs> might have been the case. And he was very, uh, uh, his physical appearance was very stereotypical to me. He had a, the chin strap beard, like the Amish, the Amish beard. And <laughs> so one day I had a customer come in and told me that um, he wasn't going to do business with us anymore because there, there was a, uh, I had a Muslim praying out in front of my store and that that was uh, insensitive to uh, whatever. So I didn't agree with that. I thought, oh, whatever. So I went out and found him out there. And as I'm walking up, I started to laugh. And he was facing west. And if you're not familiar with the Muslim prayer, they are um, called upon to face towards Mecca, which if you're in Tampa, Florida, is to the southeast. And he was facing directly due west. And I tried to explain this to him, and he argued with me that, no, no, Mecca was that way. And I... <laughs> but, you know, that's an example. So I came up with a compromise with this kid um, where I sort of cleared out some space in a storage room, and I gave it to him. And I told him he could do whatever he want with it, wanted with it. And it was sort of this, I don't know, medium-sized room, maybe 12 by 12 and it had a lot of old paperwork in it. I sort of moved everything out of the way and gave him the middle of the room. And he brought in like a little rug and a table. He brought all this stuff in and he set it up the way he wanted it. And uh, I showed him which way southeast was. <laughs> and uh, one day I caught him in there. I went in there and he had candles. And he's in this like little space filled with ancient paper. I was just like, buddy, you cannot have candles. No candles. You can't have candles in here. You're going to light the whole building on fire. And he sort of looked at me with his big, confused eyes. No candles, Yusef. No candles. So my wife would come by the store every once in a while, and uh, and she came by one day, and uh, she knew pretty much everybody, and she met the kid, and... Um, Later on that evening, she goes, I can't believe you hired a terrorist. That kid's a terrorist. I was shocked. My lovely wife, not a 
hateful bone in her entire beautiful body. And here she was calling this poor Muslim boy a terrorist. And I thought, my wife is racist. She sees this boy and thinks he's a terrorist because he's brown and he's a Muslim. What in the world? Who would have thought? And I told her that. I can't believe it. She's like, no, he just is. I'm telling you. She goes, I'm telling you, that kid's a terrorist. That is crazy. She's like, no, he's a terrorist. <laughs> That's insane. So time goes on. He's not a good employee. He cost me a brand new Hyundai. He was doing an oil change on a Hyundai that had uh, 3,000 miles on it. It's the very first oil change. He forgot to put oil back in it. The lady left and uh, blew her engine. And we had a customer satisfaction policy. And she, um, I told her I would get a, a brand new engine and put it in her car and get her a rental car while we did the work. And she said no. She had a brand new car and she wanted another brand new car. She didn't want a new engine in her old car. She wanted a new car. She would not be satisfied unless I bought her a car. So I bought, bought her a car. <clears throat> so Yusuf cost me, <laughs> I think it was about $25,000 in a Hyundai and um, <clears throat> it was clear from his his output and his inability to learn anything new he was never gonna if he worked there a hundred years he wouldn't make me $25,000 and so I started sort of looking for an out and then I went on vacation and when I came back I had a policy no one could call me while I was on vacation Earlier in my career, I used to let people call me on vacation if there was a problem. And then I realized what actually happens when you do that is that I'm stressed about the problem, but I can't fix it. And so I ruined my own vacation and the problem doesn't get solved necessarily anyway. So I said, no more. May not call me on vacation. So nobody called me. I got back and Yusef had tagged the wall of the shop over a very large area in silver spray paint with some sort of graffiti in Arabic. I think it was Arabic. I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I literally couldn't believe it. I didn't even know what to do. It was the most insane thing ever. So, uh, I didn't know. I mean, what the hell? So, we had painted the shop about a year before the lower portion was blue. The upper portion, I think, was like a gray color. And he had tagged over both. So I got the paint out of the uh, back that was left over. And I told him he needed to fix it. So to explain how this works, these guys get paid flat rate, which means they only get paid for what they do. So a productive technician can make in excess of 100 hours in a 45-hour work week. An unproductive technician, you know, maybe makes 40 and, a 40 and 40. If you're painting the wall because you've graffitied it, you're getting paid nothing. So Yusef is painting away, and it took him three or four days to complete it to his own satisfaction. He also didn't understand why he had to paint. That took about 20 minutes. It took 20 minutes of me telling him to fix it and him asking me why before he finally got started. 
and uh, he could not comprehend his intelligence level his intellect did not allow him to understand why he had to paint over these letters he had painted on the wall of my shop in Arabic over a giant area about six feet high and about 20 feet long he didn't did not compute in his mind why that was unacceptable or why I wouldn't want it there <laughs> he kept saying I painted it yeah I know you gotta fix it. I fixed it already. I painted it. <laughs> Buddy, you're gonna have to paint over it. So, the line between the blue and the gray uh, was terrible. So, I made him come back the next day after it was dry and fix that. So, he fixed that. And, um, and then I fired him for painting my wall, which was my out. I finally got rid of this kid. Who I didn't want to hire in the first place for good reasons. But I allowed this idea to creep in my head that I was being biased against his religion, race, background, whatever. And uh, I kind of talked, I logicked out my own intuition. I attributed his the fact that he was absolutely non-intelligent to a misunderstanding of him culturally. So over that time, I guess he was up there about a year, <coughs> maybe a little more, uh, my wife would ask occasionally about the terrorist. And I used to tell her that wasn't nice. And he was a nice kid. And in any case, even if he wanted to be a terrorist, my my uh, conclusion upon studying him over an extended period of time was that he was far too dumb to be a terrorist. He said, even if he wants to be a terrorist, even if he wanted to do something horrible, he's not smart enough to figure out how to do something horrible. <laughs> and, uh, and she would say, how's the terrorist? And I'd go, like, come on, that's not nice. My, not, my wife is the sweetest woman in the world. Why is she so mean to this kid? Nice kid. Barely smart enough to tie his own shoes. So, <laughs> uh, she called me at work one day about a year after I'd gotten rid of him. And she said, I told you. I wonder, could you see where this story was going? <laughs> I said, what? She said, I told you he was a terrorist. So what? She goes, turn on your TV. And there he was on the TV in an orange jumpsuit, handcuffed, standing next to a lawyer in a courtroom because he and a friend of his had decided that they were going to go and blow up a naval base in South Carolina. So he was smart enough to be a terrorist. And they had loaded up their car with explosives. And they drove to South Carolina. Shockingly, he found it, he, meaning South Carolina. And he found the naval base. So these two idiots couldn't figure out how to get on the naval base without going past a guardhouse and a gate. So they were driving around the perimeter of the naval base, apparently, for quite some time. Long enough that somebody saw them repeatedly and called the police. <laughs> 
and said, this car keeps driving by the naval base. So the police pulled him, up, pulled him over and found two uh, foreign-born Muslim students in a car outside a naval base filled with explosives. And there he was on the TV in his orange jumpsuit with that same stupid look on his face where he had no idea what the judge was saying to him. His head kind of cocked to the side a little bit. So it turns out we were both right. My wife was right that I hired a terrorist. And I was right that he was too dumb to actually be a terrorist. And if you want to Google that, look that up. If you doubt me in any way, Yousef Megahead. I don't know how to spell it. M-E-G-A-H-E-D, I think. Megahead. <laughs> and you'll see his little dumb beard. Stupid look on his face. Uh, poor Yousef. I don't know what happened to him. I think he went to jail for a while. And then I think he got deported. But I didn't really follow the, follow the case that closely. Oh, boy. So I think I've mentioned before I'm actually an economist, though I don't work in that field, which to uh, pedantic intellectual elites means that I couldn't work in that field, which is not actually the case. But regardless, when I look at things like what's going on on our border, I see an economic problem. And while that may not be the only way to look at it, that's the way I look at it. And it's not wrong, it's just not the only thing going on. So, here's how people work. If you give people an economic incentive to do something, you take a population of a thousand people and you create an economic incentive to do something, some of those people will take advantage of the economic incentive. Some people will decide that it's a worthwhile goal to pursue. So you start a company and you put a job advertisement out and you're hiring this job where someone has to come and, and work in your, uh, in your factory for $10 an hour for 80 hours a week. Somebody's going to show up. Maybe a ton of people will show up. Maybe two people will show up. Somebody will come. Welfare programs universally all have the same fate. And the reason they all have the same fate is because human beings are essentially the same. And here's the way in which human beings are the same. Welfare programs all exist for benign, altruistic reasons. Fortunate people who are doing well observe others who are not. Through a variety of circumstances, variables. And they determine that people are essentially good and they see some misfortune in the lives of those who aren't doing well economically. And they assume the misfortune is the cause of the situation, which it might be. And then they think to themselves, we should help these people. So there are universally sympathetic groups. Orphans are universally sympathetic group. Obviously, no child is at fault that their parent died or left them or whatever the case may be. And then widows are essentially a universally sympathetic group unless they killed their husband. You know, a woman who 
uh, is a housewife and mother, and her husband works, and then he dies, and then she has no income. You know, that's a that's universally sympathetic, especially if she has children, especially if she's young. And so most of the time you hear about programs, welfare programs spawning into existence, it is to deal with a universally sympathetic group, the elderly, the sick, the physically handicapped, the mentally handicapped, widows and orphans. And even if there's no stipulation that only that group can partake in the particular welfare program being proposed, it will be... Uh, introduced to the public inside of a narrative that it was going to help widows and orphans. The elderly, the handicapped, physically or mentally. And the reason that is done is because in part those who are proposing it are altruistic and benign and want to help someone and also because they understand that it's essential to suggest you are solving a, a problem that is uh, befallen a universally sympathetic group. If you want to get millions of people on board with a program, you got the, you know, it's got to be a big problem. Orphans are hungry. Widows are in danger of losing their homes. The elderly can't afford food. So you come up with a program to fix it. So here's what happens, though, because people are people. We'll pick one. Food stamps. So the problem is there are people in the United States of America in whatever year that program began who are considered undernourished or malnourished. Some of those people are, of course, women. Some are mothers. Some are children. And some are single mothers through no fault of their own. And so we're going to have a program to provide them with food. And the way that we're going to prevent fraud is we are going to not give them money. We're going to give them food stamps, which is essentially they only can trade them for food. They cannot buy alcohol, tobacco, lottery tickets, or whatever other thing you might think someone would waste your charity on. We're going to restrict their ability to waste your charity. And people think, oh, this is good. We're going to help these people and we're going to stop them from abusing our generosity. Okay. So here's what inevitably happens. And you can go anywhere in this country and, and start talking to people who are SNAP recipients or food stamp recipients and you will find this to be the case. Here's what happens. There are individuals who, the minute you've ex created the program, <clears throat> make the conscious decision to take advantage of the program, and then make the conscious decision, they find out what the criteria are to benefit from the program, and then make the conscious decision to, to fall to the level where they meet the criteria so that they can receive the program. It's not that they're incapable of rising above the level of poverty required to get food stamps. It's that they've decided that it's easier to fall to the level of poverty where you do receive food stamps than it is to rise above it. And so they choose to fall below it. 
Now, there are people who think that this is a this thought is heartless and cruel. Those people haven't spent time with people on food stamps. So one of the most common food stampy scams is that a large group, three, four, five, six adults, cohabitate and all get their own food stamps. And then they pull those resources together. So you've got, let's say they say, okay, a person, a single person needs $200 in food stamps a month if their income is below X. Right? And then you get five people together. Even better would be if you get one of them with no income who's a single mother, so she gets public housing or some sort of housing subsidy. And then you all move in there together, and you've got five people's food stamps, and now you've got all this extra food money. And then a couple people go out and work a little bit here and there or panhandle or whatever the case may be. And that, and then that's how you supplement that, and you all live together. And you just take advantage of as many programs as, as you possibly can by choice. And you can think whatever you'd like about the people who do that, but the simple truth is that just like everyone else, they've decided on a path for their life that makes the most sense to them. And it's not their fault that they've chosen food stamps or whatever welfare program they're choosing. It's the fault of the program, the existence of the program. So for example, it's very common in, in America, especially in urban areas, for young women to grow up and have the aspiration to have babies and get money from the government like mommy did. And before you tell me that's a racist or that's a dog whistle, whatever the case may be, my mother taught school in a city called Cohoes, New York. She taught fourth grade. And in the fourth grade, there's a unit on what do you want to do when you grow up kind of thing. And they they go over all these different careers and they talk about what what's possible. And these are poor kids in a poor city. And the teacher leads them through this exercise where they discover the possibilities, the infinite possibilities of career and passion and hard work and drive and what you could aspire to become. And every single year, without fail, there was at least one girl who gave her presentation on the career she'd like to have as an adult at the end of the unit on careers as she wanted to have babies and get paid like from the government like mommy every year and these were not black children Cohoes is a white city it's not racist it's a fact human beings of all colors backgrounds shapes sizes religions ethnicities and points of origin if you offer an incentive an economic incentive for a behavior some people will gravitate to it so in a class of 30, 15 girls, at least one out of 15 every year for over a decade at 10 years old dreamed of a future as a welfare mother, which requires fatherlessness and no income. <laughs> People think, why would anyone do that? That doesn't make any sense. You could work hard and get do something better. They don't want to. Or they can't imagine it. Or whatever the case may be. But you created a program to help an existing group of suffering people. And in the process, you've made it bigger. And if you think that's not true, go look at the numbers. Look at how many people were on food stamps when they created food stamps and watch it grow year after year after year after year after year. And there's some vari variability there that go along with the economy. There's some natural 
ebbs and flows, but essentially the program grows, it never shrinks. The old welfare programs of the 60s, 70s, and 80s were ended in the early 90s when Newt Gingrich forced Bill Clinton to end them. There weren't millions of people starving in the streets. And if you were alive back then and you remember the arguments, that was the argument against ending welfare. These people need welfare. Without welfare, they will die. That turned out to be not true. Now, what's happened since, like I told you before, all bureaucrats are leftists, so what's happened since is if you look at the people who have entered into the Social Security Disability Program, what's happened is the bureaucrats that run the Social Security Administration have decided to expand the boundaries of what is disability. And so a number of people who used to be on welfare are now disabled, legally disabled, and, and receive Social Security Disability. So the, the programs still exist. And the people still gravitate to them. So what does this have to do with the border? There is an economic incentive if you're from an impoverished village in Mexico or from uh, El Salvador or Guatemala or Honduras. There is an economic incentive to come to the United States of America. And some of that is based around opportunity, meaning you can come here and work hard and, and, uh, and rise above. That's true. But some of it is based upon receiving government aid and welfare. That is not a comment on the, the country's origin of the human beings or the race of the human beings or the color of their skin or their religion or anything else. There, is, there are economic advantages to being in the United States of America versus being in El Salvador. Unquestionably. And part of that is welfare related. Part of the economic advantage to being in the United States is based in access to health care, access to schools, access to housing that we offer these people, access to SNAP benefits. And that's why they come. Some come for opportunity. Some come for welfare. And these are difficult journeys through difficult terrain, difficult topography and difficult climates. There are hills and mountains and ravines and deserts. There's a cost to this journey. Some people have decided that the cost is worth it. You can die. People have died trying to get from Central America to the United States of America. And yet people decide it's worth it. The migrant, the quote-unquote migrant crisis in Europe is no different. And it's perhaps a better representation of the motivations of the people involved in the journey. They're coming from Africa and the Middle East. They go on small boats across the Mediterranean to Italy, because that's the closest European point to where they're coming from, and they go by foot. They literally walk. If you're a poor person who's starving and has no resources, 
Listen to the narratives. It's women and children. Refugee women and children. That's the narrative, always, because they're trying to create the most sympathetic group imaginable. If you look at the photographs of the migrants that are going to Europe or the people crossing our border, in large part it is not women or children. In large part it is young men. Well, where are you going to go? The first safe place. If you're a mother fleeing famine, drought, war, persecution with your children, you're going to go as not far as humanly possible. So you're gonna get into a country that is not persecuting you, that is not trying to kill you, there's no war, there's no famine, there's no disease, whatever, and you're gonna stop right there. Why would you keep going? You have nothing, you have no resources. Well, where do the migrants in Europe go? Do they stay in Italy? Some do. Do they go to Romania, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia? Out of Turkey, Greece? Eh, some do. Where do the great majority of them go? Germany, France, Sweden, and Britain. Sweden is as far as you can get. <laughs> it requires a second boat trip. Well, why the heck are they going to Sweden? Because Sweden has the most generous welfare system. If you look at a map of Europe and Africa and the Middle East and you say all the migrants are going to Sweden, clearly there's an economic incentive that's drawing them to Sweden. And it is not opportunity of work. It is welfare, 110%. So the millions of quote-unquote migrants or refugees that have gone to Sweden are there to suck up welfare. That's why they went. And that's why some people come to the United States. It's no different. And as long as the economic incentive exists, people will choose to do it. And as long as some people are successful, people will continue to do it. So you come from some village in El Salvador to the United States of America across the border, and you write a letter home saying life is better, that will bring more people behind you. Some people will decide it's worth it. It's worth the cost. Even though some people die making the journey. Now, the, the crisis on the border with the children is complicated and complex and there's a lot of things going on. The way we as a country handle this is important for a number of different reasons. There are those people who are truly, like Miss Ross, in my opinion, who are truly compassionate human beings who feel that children shouldn't suffer because adults have made choices we don't approve of. Basically, I agree with that. But here's the thing that's going on. These are undocumented illegal aliens entering the country. You have no evidence that adults who are with children are actually blood related to those children. You don't know who they are. This is the whole point of legal immigration, of having a system in place where in their country of origin, we verify their identity, we verify their history, we get references and background checks, we find out who they are, who they're related to, who their children are, and then we approve some of them to come to America as immigrants. Some of the adults coming across the border with children are not blood related to the children. They've been paid by the parents to bring the children into the United States of America, for whatever reason. 
some of the adults coming across the border are not good people. Right? We've gone through this before where Trump has said that some of the illegal immigrants are drug dealers and rapists and pedophiles and then the left goes crazy and the media goes crazy saying Trump's saying all Mexicans are drug dealers and rapists. No. But some are. And you have this call, this compassionate call to house children with the adults they've crossed the border with. It doesn't take a genius to imagine a scenario where parents in some Central American village have paid an adult they don't really know to bring their children to America for a better life and that adult is perhaps not a good human being. And that housing the children with that adult could be worse than separating them from the adult. Okay? You've also got the issue of, like I said, if you build a system that has the economic advantage, people will come. So let's say you said, okay, I want all the children on the border to be kept with their parents. And you have some out, some uh, omnipotent way to determine whether or not children are with their parents when they come across the border. So you say, I want them to stay together. Well, what facilities do we have in place currently that um, house them? They're basically like jail kind of things, like these detention centers. It's like, no, I don't want that. I want to build family detention. So it's nice and it's like an apartment and it's clean and they have bedrooms and beds and living room and a TV and food and okay that's a magnet the minute you do that people are going to come families will come to enjoy that experience alright I don't really even know where I was at here's what it boils down to at the border forget all the pictures of children and women that's not really even the problem Forget all these emotional pleas, P-L-E-A-S, to garner sympathy and empathy and compassion. Forget all of that because that's the food stamp problem. Oh, we've got one widow with four children and she can't afford groceries. Now you're like, oh, let's fix it. Yeah, we'll fix it. We'll have food stamps. All right, now millions of people are on food stamps. The border's the same thing. If you fall victim to this emotional nonsense and you build family detention centers on the border where everyone gets their own apartment and they get two bedrooms and a living room and furniture, got a furniture and a TV set, I mean, what, you know, kind of inhumane thing would be with no TV set and cable and then you feed them, you know, three meals a day, but, you know, the kids need snacks, so we give them some snacks and... You'll have a million migrant illegal aliens crossing the border a day. All you got to do is show up with a random kid and you get to have that. Oh, the line will be a, through Mexico. There'll just be a line. People will be bumping into each other in Honduras. What are you doing? I'm online. For what? Go to America. You have to do the opposite. As painful as it might be, as much as you think these poor people, they need blah, whatever. No. No, 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 no. Here's what you do. This is in all seriousness. Here's what you do. Don't even have a hearing. You came over the border illegally. You go home. Period. Paragraph. End of story. And if you can't figure out where they're from, take them to southern Argentina and drop them off. They won't tell you where they're really from. They won't give you a real name. Fine. No problem. Fine. You get on the bus. We're driving to Argentina. 
You say stop when we get to your village. If we don't get there and you don't say stop, you're getting dropped off in Argentina. Near uh, Antarctica. That's where you're going. End of story. And then you start rounding up illegal aliens in the country. And I know. The minute you say you're going to start rounding people up, it's like, oh, you're a crazy Nazi rounding up the Jews. No, 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 no. I don't want to put them in jail or in camps. I want to send them home. And the reason you send them home is so they cannot send letters to where they're from saying it's so fantastic here. I got a job in a factory, in a basement, in a building, the no sign outside, uh, working for a guy and he pays me $4 a day cash. Or I got a job in a landscaping crew and they pay me $10 an hour. Or whatever they send home that makes other people think this is the thing to do. The thing to do if you want to become an American is to go apply to be an immigrant. And there's nowhere in the world you have a better chance of being accepted than Central America and Mexico. That's our highest quota numbers per capita for the people that are there. So those are your best odds. You have a better chance from El Salvador to immigrate into the United States legally than you do from Germany or England. As crazy as that sounds, that's true. Any program, plan, anything you put in place to assuage your own conscience when you see a picture of a child crying will bring more crying children than you can imagine. Period. And by the way, if you don't have children of your own, maybe I get seeing a three-year-old cry and thinking like, oh my goodness. If you have your own children, do you remember when they were three? They cry about everything. They cry about the Barney episode being over. They cry about snack not being what they want. They, that's what three-year-olds do, they cry. So you show me a picture of a three-year-old crying, I'm like, oh, what happened? Swing set time is over, snack's a little late. It's not an adult crying, it's a three-year-old. They cry about everything, good God. We're gonna have pictures of a three-year-old crying standing next to her mother, next to a truck. She just walked here from El Salvador. But the mean Americans were mean to her? Really? Come on. Let's get, let's get real. I think people have a no comprehension for what the rest of the world is like. Or what real people are really like. They just want to sit around and... Cynthia Nixon, who's running for governor of New York State, I think, last I heard, said that ICE agents are like neo-Nazi Gestapo agents. What? What? <laughs> uh, no. They're, they're enforcing the law. Uh, Dennis, the Holocaust was legal. No, it wasn't. You psychos. Read a book for crying out freaking loud. You know the you know the camp doctor or the camp director from Schindler's List? You also the movie Schindler's List? And there's the guy, he's played by uh, Ray Fiennes, and he shoots Jews for fun, and he's a total psycho, and he keeps those Jewish girls in his basement, and all this weird stuff. The Nazis arrested that guy and sent him to prison for being abusive to the prisoners in his camp. So don't tell me the Holocaust. The thing you're talking about, the Holocaust, with the gas chambers and the death, and the, not legal. Not legal. I get it happened. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I get it happened. Not legal. The camp director from that camp was tried for abusing the inmates in a concentration camp and convicted and then sent to an insane asylum. 
So no, the ICE agents are enforcing the law. The law says you can't walk over the border. Until 2018, everyone agreed with that. You want a politician on record saying it? I got Nancy Pelosi, I got Barbara Boxer, I got Barack Obama, I got Hillary Clinton. Take your pick, Bill Clinton. Pick a politician. I didn't even name a single Republican yet. The Democrats all agreed. Hillary Clinton in 2015, you can't come wandering over across the border with your child and think that that means you get to stay. Now ICE agents are Nazis? You want to change the law? Call your congressman, see how that works out for you. But the people who enforce the law aren't Nazis. They're just doing what their job is to do. And quite frankly, like I said, until about three weeks ago, we all agreed it wasn't cool to wander across the border and just be, come in the country and be allowed in here. So now apparently we're for open borders. The left is all for open borders. They've revealed themselves to be who they truly are. Stupid. No, we have a process. We have an immigration process, a legal immigration process that includes vetting of the immigrant who wants to come. That means you find out whether or not they're drug dealer, gang member, child molester, rapist. They have diseases. And if they do have any of those things, you rule them out. No, no, you can't come to America. It's unbelievable. Do not allow yourselves to become emotionally invested in narratives. Political narrative. This is a political narrative. Do people come over the border illegally? Yes. Are some of those people rapists and murderers? Yes. Is that dangerous for all of America? Yes. Can we afford to offer welfare programs to the entirety of the Western Hemisphere? No. There you go. Build a damn wall. 20 feet high, 15 feet wide. I want China to be jealous of our wall. Guard it around the clock. Nobody over, nobody under. And then if somebody does get in the country some other way illegally, send them home. Send the country they come from the bill. Not, you have to draw a line in the sand. Anything short of decisive, swift action is going to lead to a never-ending flow of poverty-stricken illegal aliens into the country, some of whom are rapists and murderers, all of whom are here to collect welfare. And in case you haven't bothered to look at any of the reports that come out of the Congressional Budget Office, Social Security, Disability, Social Security for Retirement, Medicare and Medicaid are all going broke. Already. And you want to add people to it. And you want to have more SNAP. And you want more and more and more. And housing and this and that. And oh, jobs program. Oh, blah. And by the way, the reason wages are low, the reason that you're out there parading around asking for $15 an hour is because that there's more people in the country than that are looking for jobs than jobs. It's very simple. If you want wages to go up, you need less people in the workforce. Period. Paragraph. End of story. You want $15 an hour? Good. Let's do that. We'll end all immigration, both legal and illegal, until wages just reach $15 an hour on their own naturally with no government intervention. And then we'll have a conversation about perhaps starting up immigration again. We let a million people a year in the country legally. In a hundred years, that's a hundred million people. It'd be like a quarter of the country. So by 2065, because this all started in like the late 60s, so let's say 2070, which isn't that far away, 
you know, 50 years from now, a quarter of the country will be illegal immigrants, or be legal immigrants that came here legally, although some of them, I guess, will be dead by then, but just in, anyway, go with me. A million a year legally, that's not enough? We need more? What the hell for? You want wages to get to be $2 an hour? A dollar an hour? 50 cents? So ridiculous. And I get that there's children involved. I get it. But if some mom in Honduras paid some guy $6,000 to drag her kid all the way up to America, that's not cause for you to change the way you believe on how we should handle our borders. That's a bad mom making bad choices. And that kid should be sent home. And that mom should be not do that again. It's very, very cut and dry, simple. If you allow yourself to be emotionally invested in the lives of three-year-olds who are crying, or this idea that ICE agents are ripping children out of their parents' hands, the parents are going to jail. If it is the parents, which in most cases I don't think it even is the parents, but if it is the parents, they're going to jail. They broke a law. They entered the country illegally. They go to jail. You want the kids in jail? No, you don't want the kids in jail. You want the parents to stay with the kids, but you don't want the kids where they are. So what do you want? You want family detention centers built, little apartments for the people to come over the border and they can live there forever. And blah. Come on, man. So ridiculous. It is not the case that if you are pro-life, I was going to say this one time, because this was the argument between Kim Ross and I on Twitter that got her to say she was going to come on the podcast even though she was lying about it because she's polite. It is not the case that if you are pro-life that you must then also be in favor of paying for other people's children at all times. It's not the case. I don't think anyone should kill a baby before or after they're born. That doesn't mean, in order to say it's wrong to murder them, that I have to be in favor of paying for them. It doesn't mean that we as a country should pay for them for all of eternity. It doesn't mean that we as a country should deal with lower wages as a society because other people have children that they don't want to feed or they want to send here. That is not the case. Oh my goodness. None of the children on border currently under the current policies are being abused. They're all being fed. They're all being kept from physical harm. Which is the purpose of the policy in the first place. If you don't like the policy, talk to Congress. I guess Trump just had an executive order. I don't really care. The executive order should be deport faster. You want to claim amnesty or you want to claim asylum or whatever the hell game they play when they come over the border? Fine. Play the game. Let's have an asylum hearing right now. What country are you from? Is there currently a war going on there or a famine or some sort of uh, Ebola outbreak? No? Go home. Done. Gavel on wooden mallet. Poof. Goodbye. How are we supposed to get home? How'd you get here? We walked. All right. Turn around and walk the other way. simple. Anything else is inviting 
more people than you ever could imagine to wander over the border. Any kind of nice treatment, any kind of perks, any kind of structural program in place is asking for more government, less freedom, lower wages, and more migrants than you possibly can imagine wandering over the border. So many people you can't deal with it. I promise. I love kids. All kids. I think they're all great. They should be taken care of at home with their parents. Listen, I love you guys. I hope you have a great weekend. Happy Friday. I hope you enjoyed the story about Yusef Megahead. I hope everyone Googles Yusef Megahead and sees what that dopey kid looked like. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to tell a friend.